1 Kings chapter number 17. Last week we began a a short series on uh, this chapter of the Word of God, and we titled it, When God Fails. Now, you and I, we know that God never fails. But as you read the Word of God, one of the things that will unlock many of the passages of the Word of God is to understand that portions of the Word of God, they're written with perspective. Can I give you an example? This morning as we read and learned about what God did in Nebuchadnezzar's life, as Nebuchadnezzar describes what he saw, he calls him that comes from heaven a holy one and a watcher. Now, those are unique terms that you won't find anywhere else in Scripture. But they're used there because those are the words that Nebuchadnezzar used because as he saw an angel come down from heaven... He called it by what he knew to call it by, which was a holy one or a watcher. And as you read through the Word of God, you'll find that if you can gain the perspective of the person that God is using to pin those things down, it'll give some insight as to some truths. Can I give you another example? As you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, the perspective is that of man's attempt at happiness apart from the Lord. And so as you read through, it's very dismal, it's very bleak. And oftentimes, Solomon in writing in Ecclesiastes, he'll say that vanity of all vanities, he'll say all is vanity, everything is empty. Nothing means anything, food has no taste, my eyes can't see any color, my ears can't hear any songs. Now, for you and I, I hope that's not the experience through the fullness of the joy that we have through Jesus Christ. I remember when I got saved as a 10-year-old boy, everything looked different. And you say, well, that couldn't be, preacher. You're just a 10-year-old boy. Well, don't tell me. I mean, I remember it. And uh, I remember going to my mother and uh, saying to her, now, this is one of them strange memories that you just remember. You have any of those from your child? You don't know why you remember it. Don't make any sense. You forgot so many important things, but you remember that. Well, I remember going to my mother a day or two after I got saved. And I doubt she'll remember this, but uh, she was loading the dishwasher, and I was helping her. And I told her, I said, uh, Mom, now that I'm saved, I'm going to be a good boy. I'm going to do my homework now. Now, how strange. But in a little boy's mind, that made sense. I'm thankful that he doesn't hold us to our promises. Amen? (laughs) Because there were many days after that that I didn't keep that promise. But uh, everything was different in a moment. But as Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes, he is not writing it with that perspective. He's writing it as a man that's out of the will of God. He's writing it as a man that is trying to do things his own way. And so it'll unlock some insight if you'll read the book of Ecclesiastes with that understanding and with that perspective. In the same way, 1 Kings chapter 17, we know that God does not fail. But as we journey through this chapter, I want to try to place us in the shoes of Elijah the prophet. You can imagine, he has walked into Ahab's palace and told Ahab that as the Lord my God liveth, uh, it shall not rain, nor shall there be any dew until I have spoken it. And uh, there has been drought and there has been famine. But God has told Elijah that he was going to feed him with ravens and that he was going to drink uh, of the brook. And so Elijah goes uh, there uh, by uh, the brook and drinks of it, the brook careth. And God provides for him and watches over it. Well, one day the Bible tells us that the brook dries up. 
Now, you and I, it's easy for us to be judgmental as we sit here uh, about, oh, 3,500 years or 3,000 years uh, separated from it, and uh, we can hold a complete Word of God, and uh, we know how it turns out, but you put yourself in Elijah's shoes and things don't look very good. The brook's just dried up. There's no water in the land. He could die. It seems as though God's provision has been disrupted. Now, we looked last week at how God had a plan for that. You know, you'll find this to be true, that God always has a plan. Nothing is ever just by happenstance or by accident with the Lord. He knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. He's always got a plan. We saw last week that God hadn't failed Elijah, that He had commanded a widow woman to sustain him. But as we read tonight, we'll find that not only are there times when God's provision is disrupted, but there are times when it seems as though God's plan is desperate. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you that there's some times in life that it don't look like God knows much what He's doing. There have been times in my life when uh, my plan would have been a little bit different than God's plan. I was telling them in Sunday school this morning that uh, if I had tried to make my life what it is today, I'm 27 years old, I'll be 28 in another month or so, and if I had tried to make my life what it is today, it would have been impossible. I could not have brought upon myself the blessings that God had bestowed upon me. I couldn't have done it. My plan wouldn't have been much like God's plan, but I'm sure thankful that God's plan was enacted instead of my plan. So there's times when it seems as though God's plan is desperate. Maybe you're here tonight and you're just having a little trouble with what God's doing in your life. Well, I want us to walk with Elijah through this passage and I want us to consider a few things. And I think if maybe we see it the way he sees it, learn the things he learned, we'll be the better for it. Let's begin reading at verse number 8. The word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you and praise you for the privilege of being in your house. I pray, Father, that you'd help us for these next few moments to be surrendered to your moving and working. And, Father, that you would illuminate our minds and eyes and souls to these truths. And, God, that we'd be the better for it and that you gain the glory. Lord, we love you tonight, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, when we left Elijah last week, the brook had dried up. I intentionally began reading at verse number 8, and last week we left off at verse number 9. 
But I did so because I believe these two stories are very deeply connected one with another. You see, all the while that the flow of the brook was getting a little slower, God was moving and working on the heart of a widow woman in Zarephath. And we find that the story begins with the voice of God. You see, the first thing we notice is the direction of God's plan. I've heard people talk about the difficulty sometimes of discerning the will of God. Can I say to you that I don't think the will of God is all that difficult to discern. But I do believe the will of God is a matter of timing. I believe if our heart is right before the Lord, and I believe if we're seeking the wisdom of God, what does the Bible say? How do we get the wisdom of God? The book of James says, If any among you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. Now, you know what that means when it says, Giveth to all men liberally, don't you? That means he's just waiting to give out wisdom to those that would come to him seeking it. God's not playing hard to get with His will. God is not trying to be mysterious with His will. God is not trying to withhold from you details of His plan. But if you're anything like me, if you knew every detail from day one, you'd sure make a mess of things. I know that my flesh would grow impatient. I know that I'd want to do things on my own time. And there'd probably be a few things that if I knew about it, I'd do everything I could to change it because I wouldn't want it even though I would become the better for having experienced it. But when it's time for God to reveal to you His will, we see that the voice of God is speaking. As soon as the brook dried up, the next thing that we learn, in fact, notice it again, verse 7, and it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And it does not say there was a period of time. It does not say that Elijah went before a group of believers and asked them their opinion. It doesn't say that Elijah went into counseling to try to figure it out. It doesn't say that Elijah went and bought the next bestseller from the latest, hottest Christian author and began to try to go on a 40-day fast. The very next moment, the Word of the Lord came unto him, saying, We see the closing of one door and we see the opening of another door. You see, some of you, you're waiting for one door to open when another door's not being closed. You're wanting God to reveal things to you that you don't have to know yet. And I would say this, that the will of God is on a need-to-know basis. When the time comes, God will speak. Listen to me, when God speaks, He speaks clearly. He does not stutter. He does not stumble. When He wants His will made known to you, He has a way of making His will made known unto you. And I think a lot of times those that are struggling to find the will of God, what they're really doing is struggling to make their own will the will of God. We have a way as Christians of not liking to take yes for an answer. And sometimes when God's trying to... You remember what Joshua did? Can I share? I know if you've been in church here any amount of time, you've heard this before. But can I share with you what Joshua did? You remember in Joshua chapter 5, they were about to attack the city of Jericho. And Joshua goes off by himself and all of the army is arrayed down in the valley uh, before him. And he goes up on a hillside and he wants to meet with the Lord. And when he gets there, the Bible says that there's a man standing there with a sword drawn. And Joshua approaches him and listen to what Joshua says. Joshua says, are you for us or are you against us? It's basically what Joshua asks. He says, are you come for us or are you come against us? We know that that man was no other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the angel of the Lord. He was what theologians call a Christophany or a theophany, a pre-Bethlehem incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there upon that hillside, you know what he says to Joshua? He says, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come unto you. You know what he was saying? Joshua says this, Lord, are you for me or are you against me? 
And the Lord says, Joshua, I'm above you. That army down there, that's not your army. That's my army. That battle that's before you, the battle is the Lord's, Joshua. It belongs to me. If this battle is going to be won, Joshua, it's not going to be won because you're leading. It's going to be won because I'm leading. And you know what we have a bad habit of doing? We take something before the Lord and we say, All right, Lord, are you going to help me with this or are you going to get out of the way? We want God to rubber stamp our plans. Listen, friend, that's not how it works. There's a lot of fussing and feuding and fighting about this idea of lordship salvation. Do we acknowledge Him as Lord? Do we have to acknowledge Him as Lord? Let me just put it to you this way. He is Lord whether we recognize it or not. And I don't believe that a, that a young person understands everything it's going to mean to be saved all the time. I know I sure didn't. If you had uh, run out in front of me all of the persecution or trials I would have, uh, 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 that I would have experienced as a Christian, it may have caused me to falter and turn away. By the same token, if you had ran in front of me every blessing that God would bestow upon me, it might have caused me to cling unto Him, not because of who He is, but because of what He does. Truth is, I was pretty ignorant when I got saved as a ten-year-old boy. I understood I was a sinner. I understood I was on my way to hell. I understood that Christ had died in my place, and I understood if I called upon Him, He'd save me. Now, that's pretty basic, don't you think? But I do notice this, that as you go through the Word of God, it never says, call upon Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It always says, call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? Are you saying uh, that it's a lordship salvation? No, I'm saying He's the Savior and He's Lord. Whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, He is Lord. And our life will go best when we let Him be, Lord. You see, when the time came, God spoke and God made it known to Elijah. And Elijah had a choice. We see the voice speaking, but I want you to notice, secondly, we see the vision specific. Notice what God says in verse number 9. When the Lord does speak to Elijah, He says this, Arise, get thee to somewhere which belongeth to something, and dwell there. Behold, I'll have something figured out when you get there. Is that how your Bible reads? It's not how my Bible reads. My Bible reads this way. It says, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Isn't it funny? God didn't just have an opinion about who was going to sustain it. God also had an opinion about where He was going to be sustained. God had an opinion about how long He was going to be sustained. Can I just give you a little insight here? And you Listen, you let me preach just a word to you. I believe it will help you. God cares about the details of your life. I, I know I've shared this time and again, but I'll share it again tonight. It was asked one time to Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, who was a Bible teacher in England. Someone asked him one time, said, Do you believe that God cares about the little things in our life? And I've had people ask me this. People have asked me, you know, does God care about my golf game? Does God care about my cat or my dog? Or, you know, does God care about this rash I've got? I don't know. People tell you things when you're a pastor. And Dr. Morgan looked at the young man and said this, what in your life would be big to God? The truth of the matter is God cares about every detail of our life. There's no big things and small things to God. And I think you say, you mean, preacher, that God really cares about those minuscule things? Sure. Not because He cares about those things, but because He cares about you. And what burdens you burdens God. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And so God does care. God has a specific will for your life. 
I understand there is a revealed will of God that is true for every single one of us. It's the will of God that we give thanks in everything. It's the will of God that we abstain from fornication. On and on we could go through things that are expressed as the will of God, the expressive or explicit will of God. Then there's the implicit will of God that's revealed in Scripture. I mean, listen, there's some things you don't have to pray about. You don't have to pray about whether to go to church. You don't have to pray about whether to read your Bible. You don't have to pray about whether to pray. That's the implicit revealed Word of God. If it was good enough for Jesus, I believe it's good enough for us. But then I believe there's the unrevealed will of God. Called only so because God's not necessarily going to reveal His will for your life to me. Let me tell you something. There, there, there is a difference in pastoral ideology when it comes to that matter. I know a lot of pastors, they believe that God speaks to you through them. I'll go ahead and tell you right now that if God was just going to speak to you through me, He wouldn't give you the Holy Ghost. He speaks to you. He deals with you. I understand pastoral authority, and I even believe this. I believe God gives us a pastor for a reason. I believe we ought to listen to pastoral guidance and, and godly counsel. There's a safety in a multitude of counselors. I believe in that, but understand this, that God is not required to reveal His will to anybody but you. You say, preacher, that gives me a license to do anything. I can tell you it's the will. No. Anything contrary to Scripture we know is not the will of God. But even beyond that, listen, it's not a license to do as you please. It's a responsibility to soberly and, and faithfully and diligently seek out the will of God about things. God revealed His will to Elijah, and it was a specific will. I mean, when God gave him direction, He gave him every direction that he needed to know. There are some things that were left out. You notice that God did not reveal to Elijah how this woman was going to sustain him. In fact, we notice not only the direction of God's plan, but notice the details of God's plan. There are some things God revealed. There are some things God did not reveal. But we learn a few things about it that I want you to notice. I want to say, first off, this was a mysterious plan. You say, what do you mean, preacher? It was a strange plan. Uh, if you were to read in the book of Luke, you would uh, find this truth to be given. And, and I'll, I'll read it. We'll reference it again here in a moment. But I want you to listen to what it says in Luke chapter 4, verse 23 through 26. The Lord is speaking, and He said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And He said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. You know what the Lord is saying here? Zarephath, that belonged to Sidon, was a Gentile city. God's people are starving to death. And the Lord says to Elijah, I've got a little Gentile widow woman that I've commanded to sustain you. How unusual, how mysterious are God's ways. The old songwriter said it this way, that he plants his foot upon the sea and rides upon the way. I'm pretty sure that's not how it goes, but it sounded good. Amen? Man, God's mysterious. He has his way, the book of Nahum says, in the whirlwind. Sometimes God's ways don't make sense to us. And surely Elijah had some questions when God said this to him. Surely he thought to himself, Lord, of all the widow women that are dying, of all the people that are starving to death in Israel, you're going to send me to a Gentile. Of all the Gentiles that you could send me to, preacher, you're going to send me to a woman. Isn't that inappropriate? 
preacher of all the people, of all the women you could send me to, you're going to send me to a widow woman, surely a woman that can't even provide for herself, let alone for anybody else. Funny how God does things sometimes. If you reflect over your life, you'll find out how strange the will of God has been. I think about, and I, I, listen, I've got to be careful because I could spend two hours doing what I'm about to do right now. But I think about the things that God has done in my life and my wife's life. My in-laws my, sang for us, my outlaw in-laws sang for us. And I think about the things God did in their life. It was 1974 when you were saved. 77. Okay, you were in your 60s then. Okay. And, uh, okay. If you were to go back some, I don't know, I guess that's 40 years. If you were to go back some 40-odd years, my father-in-law was a part of the hippie movement. And, and not when it was love and peace. I mean when it got real ugly and there was nothing left but drugs and violence. Out in the Midwest, raised a Roman Catholic, raised in the home of unregenerate parents, a man that didn't have a hope in the world of ever coming to know Christ. And God sent people into his life to win him to the Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, my mother-in-law was being raised here in East Tennessee in a home that did have the truth of the gospel. God crossed their paths in, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and they met and they fell in love. There's no reason in the world outside of the Lord Jesus Christ that they should have ever met each other. My own mother and father uh, were uh, going to the church I grew up in over in East Knoxville at the time. My mother did the flowers for their fun er, funeral. <laughs> Freudian slip, I think is what they call that, for their wedding. How unusual the way that God works. They got married. They had four daughters. One of them I got. <laughs> but they moved up to Indiana for a while lived in Indiana. They went up, my father was a part of the or my father in law was a part of the bricklayers union and there was work up there. And they went up there for I don't know how many years, several years, lived up there. And I may be telling this story wrong, but don't correct me because it's good for the preaching. And they came back to Knoxville because there was a job that he had put a bid in on and he had gotten that bid to work at a at a building downtown and so he followed the money back down here. And while he was here, he had made contact with the people at my home church that had always had an influence in his life. And uh, I'm sure for a lot of years he wondered why God had him to get that Bible degree. What use does a bricklayer have for a Bible degree? But then God opened a door for him to go and be a teacher in a Christian school in East Knoxville. And in the eighth grade, my beautiful wife walked in the door. I had no notion to ever marry that girl. We became friends. And God was just moving and working in a mighty way. How mysterious God's will is. I mean, if you go way back into the 70s, if somebody hadn't given him the gospel, I probably wouldn't be standing here in front of you today. And on and on we could go through the mysteries of God's will. You see, it was a mysterious plan, but it was a manifold plan. In other words, God wasn't just doing one thing. Because listen carefully, God never just does one thing. His grace is manifold. His will is manifold. You know what a manifold does on a car? It distributes. It takes one source and it spreads it many directions. And that's the way the will of God is. 
I was talking to someone back of this, and I really want you to hear what I'm about to say. You remember what I said about perspective? Perspective. We have a perspective as human beings. Can I give you a, a perspective of the manifold will of God in reverse? You remember what Paul said in Romans 8, 28? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Paul looks at it from the human perspective and he sees the finished product. And he sees all of these manifold avenues leading to a singular goal in his life. But God looks at it the other way. God sees it from heaven and He sees manifold purposes issuing from His will, many lives being worked in at the same time, all leading to a grand design of His perfect will. God's got a manifold plan. You may not get it. You may not understand it right now. But guess what? You can't see what's going on in the other field. I'll never forget. I'll go ahead and steal it from them and preach it and pretend it's my own. But I'll let you in on a secret that Brother Jonathan McNeese preached this first when he came and he preached on Ruth. And I'd never seen this before, but I was blown away when I saw that the Bible tells us about a woman by the name of Naomi. And you know the story. She goes down into Moab with her, with her husband and, and her two sons, and they marry and, and uh, they take Gentile brides, Orpah and Ruth and, and uh, Malon and Chilion, the father. They all die. And so Naomi, she's left there uh, with Ruth and with Orpah. And you know the story about how they come back and uh, there in the gleaning fields of the barley harvest, uh, Ruth meets a man uh, that, that is the kinsman redeemer. And you know the beautiful picture that it is of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a strange phrase that's used at the end of chapter number 1. You know, the Bible says this, that they came back to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. You see, if you had looked there in Moab, things would look pretty bleak as they stood and wept beside three freshly dug graves, as their life was in pieces and nothing made sense. If you had gone down there and seen the heartache, but if you were to look in Bethlehem, you would have seen the farmer gathering the seed to begin to sow it. If you go back to Moab, you would have seen them down there as Orpah turned away from Naomi and Ruth clave unto her and said, Whither thou goest, I will go, and whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. And my God shall be your God, and I'll die where you die. And seen the tear and the heartbreak there in Naomi's face. But if you were to go back to Bethlehem, you would have seen the plow turning over the soil and preparing for the planting of the seed. You see, we can see it on this side, but we can't see it on the other side. Sometimes we sit in Moab and we say, God brought me home empty. But if we could see it in Bethlehem, we'd realize that He's just planting a harvest for us. Man, His will is manifold. It didn't make a lot of sense to Elijah. He couldn't figure out what God was doing. But do you know what God was doing? Do you know why it was that God sent him to a widow woman in Zarephath instead of a widow woman in Israel? Because Israel was under judgment. And God wasn't going to bless an Israelite to sustain his prophet. You know, one of the chief means of God's judgment on a people is the hiding away of his prophets, of his men of God. I believe that's part of what we're seeing in our country. I believe that's why there's such a drought of God-called preachers that'll preach the Word of God and expound truth and call sin by name is because our country's under judgment. You say, it don't make sense, preacher. Well, it may not make sense to you right now, but you can't see what God's doing in another place. 
And so you have to trust the promise of God that all things work together for good. That's how you see it. But if you saw it the way God sees it, He wouldn't say they just work together. He'd say, I'm working them together. And I'm doing manifold and magnificent things. We see the details of God's plan, but I want you to notice the difficulties involved in God's plan. I'd have to lie to you to tell you that God's plan is always easy. I'd have to lie to you to tell you that it always works out without a single bump in the road. Now, God knows about those bumps in the road, and God's accounted for them. But there were some things that Elijah had to be worried about, quote-unquote. And I want you to notice them with me. First off, I want you to notice that he had to contend with the protesting of the widow. He arrives there at the city gate, and she's already there. God had commanded her. I don't know if she was there because God had commanded her to be there, if God had simply just led her there uh, in in an unconscious way. But there she is, and she's gathering of sticks. And he goes up to the woman, and he says, Fetch me a little water. She says, Okay, I'll do that. Elijah probably thought, Well, this is going to be easy. (laughs) You know, a lot of times that's how it looks at first. And uh, I remember when I first started pastoring, you know, and there, every every church, every every ministry has a honeymoon period. And man, I remember that the first uh, few months, you know, you'd preach it, no matter what you preached. I mean, you you read the phone book, and people just fall into the altar, and and, and I mean, you know, we like doubled in number, and everything. I thought, man, this is going to be easy, <laughs> you know, man, that's going to be easy. We can do this. And then he says to her, he says, all right, now fetch me a little something to eat. And this is, can I boil it down to you? Can I boil down what she says? She says, no, Elijah. There's just enough left for me and my son. We're gathering a couple sticks together to start a fire, and we're going to bake it and eat it and die. There's roadblock number one. You know, sometimes as the will of God unfolds in our life, we run into people that are hindrances to doing the will of God. Some of you might say, preacher, man, I'd love to see God bless and use my life but you don't know about my spouse. Preacher, I'd love to see God use and bless my life, but you don't know about the problems I have with my children. Preacher, I'd love for God to bless and use my life, but you don't know about the rest of my family. Let me tell you something. I may not, but God does. God does. God's, I, I, I know you won't believe this, but God's thought this thing through. And the protesting of the widow, that was no problem to God. God had a way. Let me tell you, you know what the Bible says? That the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turneth it whithersoever he will. There's nobody that you're going to run into in trying to do the will of God, but what God has a handle on it. And if anybody becomes a roadblock in the will of God, God's already accounted for that. You say, but preacher, what if they do their own thing? Well, let me give you a little truth. God's still sovereign. God's still sovereign. Read read the book of Romans. Read chapter number 9 and 10 and 11. You know what the truth of that is? The truth is not that, oh, God elects some to heaven and God elects some to hell. The truth is this, that God even uses nations according to His will. We saw it this morning. We saw in Nebuchadnezzar's life. There's not much more important of a man in the world. And yet God was able in a moment to rob everything from him and in a moment to restore everything to him. There's nobody that you've got to... Come. Some of you say, but preacher, you don't know that person, but God does know that person. Go ahead and serve God. Go ahead and do the will of God and leave it to God to work out the difficulties. Not only the protesting of the widow, but the poverty of the widow was a difficulty they had to encounter. You know what she goes on to say? She says, no, Elijah, I won't do that. And here's the reason why. Because, Elijah, I couldn't even if I wanted to. I can't sustain you. 
You see, we always see this thing from the side of Elijah. And I know we're trying to do that tonight, but have you ever thought about it from the widow's standpoint? The Bible doesn't say that the Lord guided a widow woman to sustain thee. The Bible doesn't say that God moved in the life of a widow woman that she would sustain. The Bible says that the Lord said, I commanded a widow woman to sustain thee. So evidently, somewhere along the line, the voice of God pierced through the darkness of her unbelief and said, widow woman, there's a prophet coming your way and you're to sustain him. God had asked something of her she couldn't do. Don't you imagine she had some frustration, some, some doubt, some discouragement. Don't you know she wondered what this was all about. Sometimes I think we disconnect the human experience from the biblical record. But place yourself in her shoes. She didn't know God, but God had spoken to her. She didn't understand what was going on in Israel, but God was dealing with her. And she didn't know how it was going to happen, but God had commanded her. She had no means. You know, God has a way of asking us to do things that we're incapable of to show us how capable He is. If the only thing we're ever called to do is things we can handle... God will never have an opportunity to show up in our lives. If the only, listen, if the only thing God ever asks you to give is what you can afford, you're never going to see that God provides. If the only people that God ever asks you to witness to are people that, that you have a, a real easy open door and people that stumble in uh, and, and they want, they ask you, come and say, what, how can I know God? If that's the only people God ever asks you to witness to, you're never going to see that God can move on hearts. If God never brings you into the face of obstacles, you'll never see that He's the one that can overcome the obstacles. If God never brings you through places where your head hangs low, you'll never learn that He's the lifter up of your head. What I'm saying is this. God brings us to the impossible to show us that with men uh, all things are impossible, but with God nothing is impossible. We see the poverty of the widow. Then finally, I want you to notice, and I'm done tonight, we've seen the direction of God's plan. We've seen the voice speaking, and we've seen the vision specific. We've seen the details of God's plan. It was a mysterious plan. It was a manifold plan. We've seen the difficulties involved in God's plan, the protesting and the poverty of the widow. But notice finally the deliverance of God's plan. You know, the Bible says that the end of the matter is always better than the beginning of it. And if we quit before the end of the matter, nothing's ever going to seem like it's worked out. I understand that our salvation is not secured through our striving. And aren't you thankful for that? It's based upon the finished work of Christ on Calvary. Let me tell you something. The Christian life is very much a matter of striving. And there's a lot of times that we complain about the way things turned out. And the reason is because we jumped ship before God could do something. We didn't trust Him in the midst of our trials. Well, we find that because they trusted God, God came through for them. What was noticed first off the foundation of God's plan? What was God really trying to teach here? With this plan that seemed impossible, with this task that was insurmountable, what was He trying to teach? Well, notice what it says in verse number 13. And Elijah said unto her, now nothing's happened yet. She said, I can't do it. It's impossible. I don't have what I need. Elijah said unto her, fear not. Go and do as thou hast said. But make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me. And after, make for thee and for thy son. You know, this isn't part of my message, but can I just pause here and say this? Do you notice the order? He didn't say, go make for you and your son, and then make for me. 
You know what he's saying? He's saying, I tell you what, go ahead and put God first and you'll find that you'll never want anything in your life. Can I give you a New Testament verse for that? Uh, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things, you say, what are all these things? Clothes, food, shelter, all that your heart could desire shall be added unto you. You won't get anywhere putting God last. Part of the reason we're unhappy as Christians is it's not that God's not in the mix, it's that He's at the very end of the line. Some of us, it's not even that He's at the end of the line, it's that He's got the number two spot to some pet sin or to some idol. And the problem with a lot of us, it's not that God's not prominent, it's that He's not preeminent in all things. No, seek ye first the kingdom of God. He says, go and make me a little cake first. It says, For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. The foundation of this action in her life, this act of faith, was the Word of God. All through Israel, there were widows preparing the last meal for them and their children. All through Israel, there were people who were scraping the bottom of the barrel to get that last little scrape of meal. And those that were turning upside down the cruise to try to get the last little drop of oil. What made the difference in her life? The difference in her life was the Word of God. She was acting in response to the Word of God. I know the TV preachers would have us to believe that we can just assume God promises any and everything and He'll make good on it. But it's not true. You can name and claim anything you want to name and claim. But it don't mean anything unless God has named it first. The truth is, it's not you name it and claim it, or I name it and claim it. It's He names it, and then you and I, we claim it. It's that He makes the promise, and then we claim that promise, whereby we are made partakers of the divine nature. The foundation was the Word of God. The most fearless man in the world is him that's in the heart of the will of God and knows it. And the greatest place that you can be, be it in the eye of the hurricane, is the will of God. If you're in the will of God, you're in the safest place there is possible to be in. You have the Word of God as your bulwark, as your fortress. You have the presence of God as your comfort and as your guide. You have the promise of God as your anchor for the soul when you're in the will of God. You see, when people get out of the will of God, things fall to pieces. If they don't fall to pieces, they'll tear them to pieces. I've seen it happen. I've seen people get out of the will of God and things didn't really go all that bad except what they messed up. Sometimes it's not that which is raging around us, it's that which is raging within us that tears us to pieces. But when we're in the heart of the will of God, we can have peace and comfort and security knowing what the foundation of our purpose and plan is. And then finally, I want you to notice the fulfillment of God's plan. Well, what happened? Well, wouldn't you believe it? What God said would happen is what happened. Look at verse number 15. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah. And she and he and her house did eat, what did it say? Many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. You know what's remarkable? She took that little handful of meal and that 
few drops of oil, and she put it in God's hands. She said, Lord, I'll do with it what you would have me to do with it. And it doesn't make sense to me, and I can't understand it. But if you've asked it of me, then I'll give it to you. And God did with it as Christ did with the fishes and loaves. And as God has done time and time and time and time again, He took it and did more with it than she ever could have. Let me tell you something. I know you think you can handle this thing, but you can't handle this thing. If you'll put it in God's hands, He can handle it. I know God's will may not make a lot of sense to you right now. You may say, Preacher, I just can't figure why God would do this. Well, join the club. That's where every one of us are at. Every one of us have things that God's doing that we can't figure out in our life. It doesn't make any sense. But it's at those times we must choose to trust the Lord instead of trusting ourselves. And if you'll take that which you have and put it in the hands of God, He'll do something great with it. Not only in your life, but in the lives of others as well. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, as the musician slips to the piano, listen, maybe you need some encouragement tonight. I hope the Word of God has been an encouragement. But the true encouragement you'll get from the altar and from the presence of the Lord. And if God's spoken to you tonight in some way, I want you to slip out of your seat. I want you to come. Maybe you need to ask the Lord to gird you up for the days that you're facing. Maybe you need to ask God to give you strength and courage to follow His will when you don't understand it. But whatever it is, I want you to come and I want you to deal with the Lord because His promises are abundant and His faith and His strength and His wisdom He'll give to you if you'll come to Him.